and we're just taught that is the path to life. Go to college, you get a good job, you get a house, you get married, you have the kids. And I was like, we need to change the way we look at what success is. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the shared experiences and non-traditional paths of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Deepthi Sharma, a New Yorker through and through. Deepthi is a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur with two food-related ventures, Food to Eat and Bicky. She uses these businesses as vehicles to empower different groups, including immigrants and small business owners, and does all of this while also serving on the board of the Business Center for New Americans. Deepthi's career actually started in politics. In 2008, she helped advocate for the Obama campaign, and more recently, she ran for the NYC City Council. Though that didn't pan out, she continues to serve the community, for example, tackling food insecurity throughout the COVID pandemic and mentoring other entrepreneurs under the mayor's We NYC initiative. In this episode, we talk about why Deepthi is in the food industry, it's not for the free samples, how her businesses have weathered COVID, and about her experience in New York's first ranked choice voting election. We also touch on Deepthi's experience living in India after college and her decision to have kids. Let's get started. Deepthi Sharma, welcome to Brown People We Know. Oh, before we get started, I would love, love, love your input on the show because we're new and we're growing quickly. Please fill out our audience survey at brownpeoplewenow.com slash survey so that we can keep bringing you great content to your ears. Thank you. But it's also funny that you mentioned that you were on another podcast before this because I was looking and it seems like you're pretty deep in the podcast world at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, I always like the opportunity to do podcasts because I do a lot of public speaking. And so it helps me just get better at storytelling and listening and having conversations. So I like doing it regardless of how small or big people's podcasts are. But I actually did a really cool one. I did one with Vox Media because I wrote an article in Eater, which is owned by Vox. So it was kind of cool to do a pretty well-known one. So I'm excited to see what that'll turn out to be like. So Deepi, you were born and raised in Flushing, Queens, right by NYC's 155th Street. It seems like a very diverse neighborhood. What was it like growing up there? It was... Fun, interesting, and uh, confusing all at the same time, just because I feel like as a kid, I was always trying to figure out my identity. Being of Indian origin and being a kid that was brought up here, I was always trying to figure out, well, am I Indian? Am I American? And that mostly came from like, you know, whenever I was visiting family in India, they were like, oh, you're not really Indian, you're American. And here it's like, well, you're not white. So you're not American, right? You eat different food. Your family speaks a different language. So it was quite interesting and great because I was always exposed to so many other different cultures and I was learning from different people. But there was this like constant confusion of like, well, who am I and where do I belong and what's my place? (laughs) Did you have other Indian kids around you that you could speak to about these types of things? Not a lot in my neighborhood. There were like a handful in my school and not 
Indians, there were like Pakistani kids, there were Bangladeshi kids, not a lot of Indian kids, but just like brown kids. So the experience was similar being, you know, the South Asian kid in the mix of kids from all over the world. But I come from a pretty large family. Dad is one of nine. And so I have a handful of aunts and uncles that are in New York and cousins that I used to hang out with. Growing up, those were like my closest friends or my cousins. And so I think we would generally talk about that experience, but it's interesting because we didn't talk about it as kids, probably more as adults, but not as much as kids because you're never really going through an identity crisis and being like, who else can I talk about this with? You're just like, I'm different. This is just the experience I'm going through. I don't want to just talk to the world about it. I'll just deal with it and move on. That's the way I experienced it. True. I think most of us don't even realize exactly what question we're trying to ask. I, I mean, I know for me, I started this podcast in my 20s, so it took me that long to kind of even start exploring the question. It is interesting that you mentioned that crisis or question, however you want to phrase it. You shared a quote on Martin Luther King Day that I really love. We may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. A lot of the businesses that you're working on have had a food focus, and I do want to touch on that. But there's also a strong immigrant focus in your work. So I'm thinking about the fact that Food to Eat works with immigrants. You're on the board for the Business Center for New Americans. Given that you were kind of born and raised in Flushing, I'm curious about the origin of that focus on empowering immigrants. It stems from who I am as an individual. And I think that I started to realize or started to look into my identity in my mid to late 20s and started to realize that's something to think about and build upon, right? So I identify as a woman. I am a first-generation American. Um, my parents are immigrants. I um, am a woman of color. And all of these things are what make me who I am and make me unique. And I decided to look into those and dive deeper into those and think about how they affected me as a person and how they affect our society and started thinking about my parents' story, how they came to this country. And, you know, very similar to a lot of the stories that we may have heard from our immigrant parents was just like, I came to this country with not a lot, worked really hard, paid for school on my own, worked multiple jobs, eventually saved up so I could build a business and buy a home and, and live the quote unquote American dream. And I wanted to make sure the privileges that I grew up with are the same privileges that I can provide for other people that identify with the same identities as I did and do. And so those were things that were really important for me. And that's why I built businesses that were within those spectrums. Food to Eat is a corporate catering service where we partner with immigrant women minority-owned restaurants to help them book catering jobs at large corporate offices. And the reason why I concentrated on those three categories was because a lot of the times tech companies don't build for them first. They don't build going in and saying like, how can we help immigrant businesses? They're usually building for convenience culture. They're always building for the consumer. And I wanted to change that narrative. I wanted to make sure that we were thinking about the problems and issues that they face versus just what the consumer is facing. And an organization like Business Center for New Americans really opened up my eyes to the issues that immigrants and refugees face when they come to this country and want to start something of their own. Because they lack credit history, they have no way of getting loans from big banks. And 
I really wanted to take a look at that perspective and work with an organization that was focused on providing microloans to immigrant and refugees that came to this country to help them like be able to at least get on a pathway to be a part of the middle class and to like have a good quality of life. I think these are things that like are so simple, but so important when you're actually trying to start and do something of your own. Huge systemic barriers that exist, but also many people won't see right outside of the communities. I think it's also striking that you use the phrase first generation American. I myself am a first generation American. My parents moved here. But despite the fact that we grew up in the U.S., there's such an influence on our lives by the fact that they are immigrants. So I'm wondering if you personally consider yourself more of an immigrant, a minority. Do you see a difference between the two? I say first generation American because I do want to set the precedent of I belong here, too. And I want to showcase I guess what my standing is in this country. I don't know if that's like the right way to put it, but because my heritage is Indian, so I and I it, I don't know, it goes I think goes back to just being only seen as an immigrant as being confusing to people. I'll give you an example. Like whenever I talk about my business and with Futi, whenever I say to people that we work with immigrant women, minority owned restaurants, people always give me this weird look of being like, oh, that's so amazing. And I'm like, I don't know why they're saying that, right? Like, are they saying it because they feel bad for me or for the businesses I work with? Do they really understand that I'm doing this because they're underrepresented and often overlooked? So I was like, maybe if I just start saying I'm American, it also helps normalize what an American looks like to people. And not that I don't identify with being an immigrant. I do because I've lived that experience through my parents of when they came to this country, not having a lot and, and all that kind of stuff. It's as if people think that immigrants aren't good enough sometimes. And so I kind of want to try to change that narrative and say, like, yes, they're immigrants. You don't build for them. I'm changing that narrative. I'm trying to change the way people think about them, talk about them. And I want to say that, like, we're here and we're building as first generation Americans a pathway for ourselves, just like every other immigrant community did when they came here. And, you know, like Italian Americans were immigrants at one point as well. And, now nobody sees them as immigrants unless they hear an accent. They're just like, oh, yeah, they're Italians. They're Americans. They've been here for forever. But we think about it. They also started arriving here in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, and I was just talking to a friend about that yesterday. I was like, oh, so you're Italian-American. Like, when did your family come here? And it was just interesting to hear him actually talk about his heritage because we don't often talk to people like that about where they came from and how long they've been here. And so I just find that to be quite interesting. It's also as like how I talk about food. Whenever I talk about what is American food, we're conditioned to believe it's burgers and fries, but it's not, right? If you think about like, none of us are Americans, only the indigenous are. And so what truly is American, if we really think about it, is not that burgers and fries. It's now, it's, you know, food of the world. And on top of, you know, the indigenous uh, food that was here before any of us arrived. And so what we see as American, what we think as American, that perception has to change. And it's just like a part of the conversation that I try to bring up as much as possible. There's a flip side to what you had said earlier, which is when you go to India, sometimes they don't see you as Indian enough. I'm wondering how often you go back to India and what it feels like when you're there. Does it feel like you're just a tourist? Do you feel at home while you're there? Growing up, we used to go back almost every year, a lot of summer vacations, visiting family. 
Um, my mom's side of the family is still largely based in India. And so there was always like someone to go back home to. I say home just because it's like, you know, my motherland, I guess. And I think I started to feel more at home when after college, I decided to move there for about two years. And I remember my mom was visiting me and she was like telling our cab driver how to get to point A to point B. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. If we go this way, it's actually faster and it's easier. And my mom was just like, wait, what? And she was like, no, you're wrong. And I was like, watch me and like watch these. And like, that was the first time where I felt like, oh, wow, like I belong here. Like I know it better than my mom who literally was born and brought up in Delhi. And so like, it was cool to be able to know it better than my own mom and to be able to tell her. And I grew up speaking the language. So I think that's a part of when I lived there, people welcomed me a little bit more. So like when you hear me speak Hindi, I speak pretty fluently. I don't have a very thick American accent unless or until I say certain words or I talk about a certain topic, which I'm not comfortable talking in Hindi about, right? So it's interesting how language was connected for me because I was able to not feel like an outcast. My family wasn't like, oh, she doesn't know how to speak Hindi and that we can't communicate with her. And it was one of the biggest reasons why India always did feel like home. And my parents were a big part of that keeping my language as a part of who I am and my identity is important. And it's something that I hope that I can pass on to my kids because I think that you only learn to appreciate those things when you get older. But when you're younger, you're like, crap, like that's the one thing that sets me apart. So I don't want to be different. I want to be able to fit in because, you know, as a kid, you're, you're always just trying to figure out who you are as a person. So I think many people that grew up here, the thought of going back to India is like scary to them almost because they don't feel like they'll fit in. Why did you decide to make that move? A lot of reasons, but like, it would be fun. It would be an adventure. It'd be the only time in my life that I could actually do that because like home, home to me is New York. Like, I don't think I would ever move anywhere. It's the only place in the world that I would live my entire life. And India was one of those places where I was like, yeah, I'd like to test it out, right? I have this opportunity, take advantage of the opportunity. The timing is great. I'm right out of college. I graduated in 08 where there was a recession. And so it wasn't the easiest of times to live anywhere, especially in New York. So I was like, might as well give it a try. And, and when I went, I like discovered a whole new world, right? I made friends that were from India, born and brought up there. I made expat friends. And so I was able to discover a side of myself that I wasn't able to hear, especially because also something as simple as like being a vegetarian. It hasn't been until recently where like the vegan movement has grown here, where become being a vegetarian is normal and is cool or interesting or whatever the case may be. And in India, I was like, oh, I can eat anything. <laughs> like I can go anywhere and like say vegetarian, no one looks at me three times or like there's more than one thing that I can eat on the menu. And that in itself was an interesting experience to like make me feel even more welcome and more at home was the language of food and what's acceptable and what's not seen as different. So growing up here, like growing up as a vegetarian, people would always be like, why are you vegetarian? I was like, I don't know, because my parents told me to like, or like the excuse was always religion. And I was like, I don't really think that's the reason. I just, I don't care to eat animals, nor do I think I ever will. So this is just who I am. Like, why is this such a big deal? But you could have gone to France, Italy, anywhere in the world, Japan, Australia, whatever. So I'm wondering if there was a specific, did you have identity in mind when you chose to go to India? Or was it literally just that you wanted to live abroad somewhere? So I'd gone there for a wedding. 
And I was thinking of starting a company and I was thinking about how do I do that? I ran into somebody at the wedding, a family member who worked in tech and had another cousin who was born and brought up here as well, who had recently moved to work for Google there. And I was talking to him and I was like, oh, seems like he's assimilating. He seems to be enjoying it. Talked to this other cousin who was like, yeah, you can work with engineers here. I could help you. I was like, I would have never, ever thought about even starting a company here. And at that point in my life, I had worked in politics. So I'd worked a number of campaigns and Obama had just been elected. And I had started uh, working with Democrats abroad, learning more about them as an organization. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like I get to do some political work here, working with expats. I get to explore the idea of starting my company and working with engineers, which was not easy. And, you know, I have some family here. I'll get to know more people. And so, like, it wasn't a very conscious choice. It kind of all fell into place as I was exploring the idea of what comes next for me. I wasn't saying to myself after college, like, I need to live abroad. You know, I'd studied abroad and I loved the idea of not going back to New York immediately because I'd spent so much time there, like up until college, even in college, I was in New York. So I was like, it'd be nice to like spend more time outside. And again, like in your 20s, when you're not attached to something or someone, it's a good time to be able to explore and, and take a chance on something. So aside from language and your time in India, another way that you retain culture is by wearing a bindi. Because I'm trying to break the monolith of South Asian culture, I'll also point out that in Telugu, we call it a bhutu. Mm. It seems like a really simple decision. It's a choice that you made. You put it on in the mornings, whatnot. But ultimately, it turned out to be very complex in the ways that it's changed your interactions with people. You have a lot of non-South Asians that approach you and ask you what it is. Did your husband make you wear it? South Asians approach you and they probably think that you're religious because you're wearing it. Can you talk a little bit about why you choose to wear it? And does it ever bother you that you're getting all these questions about it? I can see a lot of people just saying, you know what, I don't want to deal with the questions, so I'm just not going to wear it. So I started to, why did I start wearing it? I mean, I got married and I, like growing up, I saw my mom wearing a bindi and I just loved the tradition of it. I loved when I saw her wearing it. And I was like, oh, when I get married, it's something that I think I would like to do. And she never asked me to do it. She never told me to do it. It was just something that felt like a tradition that I wanted to keep that was hers. Now, every morning she would get up, put her bindi on after she had moisturized and put on whatever else she wanted to on her face. And I think the act of like seeing her do that and seeing my grandmother do that as well was like a tradition that I wanted to hold on to and thought that it was like a way to connect with my mother and my grandmother who had passed away when I was a kid. And so when I got married, I was like, oh, cool, I'm just going to start doing this. And I remember being amongst like extended family members, and, like my husband's family, who were like, you wear a bindi all the time? Like I had questions like, oh, you wear it with like Western clothing? And I'm like, yeah, I just, I wear it every day. Like I'm a married woman and it's like my engagement ring. Like that's the way I saw it. Like I never wanted an engagement ring. Like I literally said to my husband, do not buy me a ring. We'll have a band, like a wedding band. And I'm cool with that. And it almost felt like a wedding ring or like, you know, it was like an identifier of like, yeah, I'm married. And it's like a way to share my affection of my husband. Then it turned into like an act of resistance almost. We live in these times where white supremacy is at a rise. 
it's always existed. And I wanted something to just be like part of my language, but like a fuck you to this like administration slash other people. And just to say like, this is who I am. I'm going to wear it with pride and I don't care what anyone says or thinks about it. And I think that that was another one of the reasons why I just kept wearing it and I didn't stop. And I just felt like it empowered me to just embrace more of who I am and be more visible about it. And I have fun with it, right? Like when my mood changes, I change the color. It's not always red. It's like pink, purple, blue. And, and yeah, people ask questions, but I don't, you know, I, I'm okay with the questions as long as they're not ignorant. And I wrote an article about it. I'm okay with other people wearing a bindi as long as it comes with curiosity and it's approached with a genuine interest in the culture as opposed to ignorance of like, oh, it's just what I like to do and like something you just picked up from a culture. Like I think asking questions and understanding it is just really important. People got really upset because, I don't know, Rihanna was wearing a Ganesh necklace and I was like, well, guys, instead of getting so pissed about her wearing a necklace why don't you get pissed about the misogynistic practices that we have within the Hindu culture in modern Hinduism? The way our government is acting in India right now, like why don't we actually start, or like caste oppression, like why don't we talk about those things as opposed to something as simple as like Rihanna wearing, I mean, she was, we don't even have Bollywood, I'm sorry, this is going in another direction, but like we don't even have Bollywood stars talking about what's happening with the farmers in India, yet you have a black woman from I think from Barbados, who's talking about it, like that to me is crazy that you're rather point out that she's wearing a Ganesh necklace, as opposed to talking about the issues that are at hand and like the constant oppression that we have within our culture and our religion. So to me, I think it also brings up those kinds of questions of identity and conversation and how people view me. And so I, I try to be as open about my bindi, about my feelings towards what's happening in India. And I think it's just, I think it's important that we embrace it all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I saw a clubhouse room just on Rihanna. It was like a full day room. So it was kind of interesting. The issues that we tend to take a stand on, part of it may be that some people took that very personally. Appropriation has become like a hot topic because people felt like they were attacked for the same things that people are now appropriating today. And culture appropriation, like I do take it seriously. Like it does like offend me and annoy me. But I think that there are far greater things that people choose to not pay attention to. Um, and to me, like that's more important than anything else is that like how we marginal, like there's just so much going on in our cultures and with even within the South Asian identity right? Like how the Indian narrative is the most important narrative that's being told. We forget that there's other people that should be considered within the South Asian narrative, like Bangladeshi communities, or the Pakistani communities, or Nepalis, or the Sri Lankans, and so on. And what we claim as Desi is always just seen as mainstream Indian Bollywood culture, and we forget about everything else, to the point that we have Indian Muslim actors that are constantly named Rohan. That in itself, I think we should be questioning those things as well. As much as we care about the Ganesh being appropriated a little bit, I think those other things need to be looked at. I want to step back to your identity, we can call it, as an entrepreneur. So you've started companies like Food to Eat, which you mentioned. You've also started Vicky, which is a restaurant CRM. Both are food-related ventures. I'm wondering if that was intentional. Did you always <laughs> know that you were going to work in the food business? Not at all. Um, my parents own a restaurant, so that might be some connection to food. 
the reason why I started food to eat was because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but like the two big things were one was I was standing online at a food truck in New York and I waited for too long. I waited for 30 minutes and I got a peanut butter cookie and I was just like, I'm an impatient New Yorker. What the heck? Like, why did I just wait this long? And then the second was because I had a ton of conversations with my parents about third party services and how predatory their business practices are and, and, and how much they charge. And it was these two experiences that set me off to create food to eat, which started off as a consumer driven platform. And so the first part was wanting to create an online ordering platform for food trucks and carts. And then the second was, well, how do we help restaurants not have to pay an arm and a leg to just receive online orders? So that was what drove me to start the company. And Vicky really came from a stem of having been in the industry for so long, having seen how restaurants are powerless, how they don't have access to their own data. And we wanted to be able to get them to understand their customers and use their technology and their data more intelligently to market to customers and to bring them into their restaurants without just giving them discounts. Because that's how restaurants sell right now. Whenever they want to get you in the door, they're like, oh, we'll give you a free cup of coffee. And it doesn't always have to be something free. It can just be like, hey, remember us? We've got this great brand. We've got awesome people. Our beans come from, I don't know, Ethiopia. And like, here are the farmers. And they're telling their story because storytelling is essential and important, right? It's one of the reasons why you're hosting this podcast so that you can empower more of these stories to be told. You can change the narratives and you can elevate people that may not necessarily have the platform to do so. So you're giving them a voice as well. And I think that that's been like my motive in both companies is how do I continue to add value and how do I continue to elevate people by empowering them to scale their businesses, adding to their bottom line. So I think, I mean, I entered food by accident. You know, I worked in politics before that and I stayed in food because I saw that there was a need to continue to create intentionally. And, and I was lucky enough to be able to start the company on my own at first. And Vicky, I started with my husband. So it's, it's nice to have somebody else kind of in the mix with me as well now. But he definitely does all the work. <laughs> <laughs> COVID has been particularly hard on restaurants, but it's been much softer on what we think of as the traditional tech companies, right? Facebook and Netflix and those. You're kind of straddling the two worlds. So I'm wondering how it's been for you. So food to eat definitely took a big hit because as I described earlier, we pivoted into a B2B model after the consumer part of our business wasn't where we wanted it to be. And so last year, right around this time, actually, when businesses were closing offices and working from home, nobody was ordering catering. So our business did take a huge hit. But in this last year, we shifted our purpose and we shifted into food and security work. And that became the most important thing for us is just how can we contribute to the community? So we fundraise a lot. We were buying meals from restaurants and taking those meals and donating them to frontline workers, to shelters with survivors that had faced gender-based violence. And that was our focus. And so that's what we've done. And we've hit almost, I'd say, 150K meals in this last year which has been quite crazy because it's a lot, right? Like to shift your business from for-profit to like a non-profit essentially. And to be in this new world has been kind of crazy. Vicky, on the other hand, because we're focusing on digital connection and digital marketing has had a very different outlook because now restaurants, a big part of their connection is digital. Our focus there has been great. Like we're just helping restaurants face the new challenges of being in a digital space and making sure that they communicate with their customers 
in a more intelligent way digitally. And so like, it's nice to see while one business kind of took a, took a hit, the other one is growing and we're fundraising now for it. So quite different <laughs> and interesting. But the great thing is to know that we can at least help restaurants navigate this new world and help them hopefully not just survive, but thrive and come out of this pandemic still being here because there's been so many restaurants that have just shut down. You haven't seemed, at least to me, like the stereotypical entrepreneur, right? That's so focused on multiplying your business into the billions. You, you've seen much more mission focused. I know you just hit your 10-year mark as an entrepreneur, so I'm curious if there's been any standout moments for you, like any major wins or losses. Yeah, I mean, a major win is always when you can convince someone to pay for your product. <laughs> because I think that like that's when you know if you're onto something and that you're worthy of the business you've created. At least for me, it was. It made me feel good that, all right, someone's not willing to just say yes to using my service, but they're willing to pay for it, right? Because you always try to say like, oh, I'll cut you a deal or like, I'll give you three months for free. And, and so when they pass that period and they're finally willing to say, yeah, like I, I tested it out. This is amazing. And I'm willing to pay for it. That feeling is great. Memorable moments. Like I remember when we did try to sign on a client that was way too big for us. And I kept telling myself, like, we can do this, we can do this. But the universe had its own way of saying like, you are nowhere near being ready. And we crashed and burned. It was great because I learned so much from that experience saying, okay, here are the other pieces that I need in order to get ready for this client. And I, had I not had that experience, I would have never known what I actually needed to be successful from there on out. That's what helped us create a profitable B2B business was like crashing and burning with this ridiculously large client that wasn't even in New York City at the time. Made me realize like, all right, cool. Like this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to move forward. And, and I did. Give you the, the next steps, I suppose. I do want to pivot towards family, but I'm going to transition there by talking about the parallels between entrepreneurship and parenting, which you've written about, talked about learning to deal with unpredictability, about not taking failures personally. But a point that really stuck out to me was the point around support networks, both for new parents and for entrepreneurs. Who's in your support network as an entrepreneur and how did you find these people? I mean, my support network has always been other brown and black founders, mostly because I was experiencing a lot of rejection in the beginning, especially from VCs where they didn't really care for my gung-ho, positive social mission outlook in life. They were just like, how are you going to make a shit ton of money? And I was like, I don't know, get there. Like, you don't ask anybody else that. Like, I mean, obviously I had a plan and shown them the numbers and the market size and all that bullshit that's always asked, but like, it wasn't exactly painted in the picture they wanted. And I was always pushing more of our social mission because that was more important to me. So I just felt like it was always my fault that I wasn't good enough and I was just not a great founder when I was getting rejected. And then I realized after talking to other founders that looked like me that had similar backgrounds that may not have gone to like an Ivy League and had this huge network built out for them or had worked at a huge corporation or a consulting firm, that it wasn't me and that there was a problem in the system. VCs barely fund, I think it's like less than 2% of women founders get funded. And then you look at women of color, especially black women, it's less than like 0. 0.0006. And that to me was just crazy. And so I started to realize it's not just me. The system sucks. I was able to come out of this and actually build an amazing profitable business that like drove so much value. 
it wasn't me, it was them. And they didn't believe or buy into what I was trying to build at that time. And I'm seeing it now, right? Like it's taken a pandemic for people to realize that third party services suck. People are listening to me now and it's frustrating that it's taken a pandemic and it's 10 years later, but it goes to show that timing has a huge impact when you're building. And what makes it easier is that if you surround yourself with people that can help you get through that time and help you understand what you're going through. And I remember just in the beginning, it was tough to just rely on my husband as support because he was in a corporate company and he didn't, you know, he was in a nice cushy job where it was easier to talk to him about everything else but work because he didn't know how lonely this was. Now that he's a, an entrepreneur, he's joined this side, he knows and we can commiserate and we can support each other. But for me in the beginning, it was important to just find other founders that looked like me were women, were black and brown and understood the ups and downs. And like, like, I remember when I got one of my first speaking gigs, like a friend of mine, black founder was on it on this panel and she was like oh did you get paid for this and I was like no and I was like did you and she was like yeah that experience was like holy shit so like you got paid and I didn't and this organizer just bamboozled us out of paying like because I didn't ask they didn't pay me and that showed me again the system sucks and you have to keep pushing you have to keep asking and you have to keep bringing awareness to what's happening in the system so that we can change it together so because of time, I'm going to transition a little bit and focus on parenting. So someone once said to me that as a South Asian, your parents won't be satisfied until you have a six-figure salary, a house, and your first kid. <laughs> You've publicly discussed a lifestyle choice that I think isn't really in line with that. You've mentioned that you went back and forth on wanting kids. I'm wondering what you were weighing at the time, and was there any pressure from the community in one direction or another? And I'm asking this because I'm sure that there are other people considering a similar decision, but it's really not common in the South Asian community. Once you hit a certain age, you're immediately being asked, when are you getting married? And then once you get married, like, when are you having kids? My answer, <laughs> people will laugh, but like, my answer was always, I don't know how to have kids. And I would just say this to make it really awkward amongst the aunties and uncles and grandparents just being like, you guys never taught us because how many of them actually had the real sex talks with you anyways? They didn't. So I would jokingly make that comment. But the back and forth for me was because I always wanted to adopt and will be adopting. And the decision eventually came to have biological kids because of something that happened that was very personal with, with my husband and his health. And it just made me feel like, well, if something happened to him, I wouldn't have a part of him with me. And so it was a little selfish. But that decision to want to have biological kids came from that experience. And the back and forth was always, you know, one, because I wanted to adopt, but two, also because I didn't know if I was ready. And we're just taught that is the path to life. Go to college, you get a good job, you get a house, you get married, you have the kids. And I was like, we need to change the way we look at what success is. Because I saw my friends, some good friends of mine from different immigrant communities as well that were like following that path. And I was like, but are you happy? I don't feel like that's success to me. Like I still don't own a home and I'm happy. There's other things that I've done and have chose to invest my time and money in where I felt like that was where I was driving real value. Instead of buying a home, my husband and I started a second business together. We bootstrapped and then we slowly started fundraising. And I don't regret a single part of that at all because at least I took a risk on myself and an idea that I really wanted to see set out in the world that was actually going to help people, that was actually going to help change the way this industry was going to be built. 
So, you know, I hope that like people consider what happiness and success looks like for them and then make that decision. Obviously, like I will say that I'm in a position of privilege, but I also worked towards every one of these decisions to build the life I wanted. And it's definitely, again, like it's not easy to step away from what your parents want, but if it's a hard decision for you, like the one piece of unsolicited advice I always give is do it as a side hustle and then make it your main hustle, right? If they can see that you have your six figure job, you save money so that you're not moving back in with them, keep pushing from there. Because I think that like success can come from doing something on the side and like building it up and growing it and, and then kind of pushing it forward from there. So you do have two children today, Zubin and Chetan. How do you parent similarly or differently from your own parents? Is there something that they did that you've tried to replicate or something that they did that you've tried to eliminate or change? I don't know that I've been so conscious of identifying our parenting styles, honestly, but I just try to be the parent that I, I, I try to, um, <laughs> I'm like thinking about it now. I'm like, what do I do that's similar? Cause we definitely do do similar things as our parents did because we're just conditioned that way. But I try to over communicate with my kids, which I feel like didn't happen as much as when we were growing up. We didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about issues or things that are going on in our head. When my kids wake up, I like will ask my son, I'm like, what were you dreaming about? Like, do you remember it? Like nobody ever asked me that growing up. Only maybe when I was older, I would share a dream with my parents or something. But like, I try to ask a lot of questions. I try to, you know, like whenever we're going grocery shopping, I try to make an adventure out of every single thing that we do because I want to make sure that they're constantly exploring and identifying every experience as a new and amazing one. And I think the one thing I will say that my parents never did intentionally, to never make them feel as if they have to be goal-oriented only in life. If I get this, then I will be happy. If I get into the school, then I will be happy. If I buy this, then... Like, I want them to just live good, happy lives by just existing and by putting their most positive selves out in the world. And I know it sounds like very kumbaya-ish or whatever, it's something that's so simple that I don't think we're taught because when our parents came here, they just had to fight for everything. And because they sacrificed so much, we've been put in this position of privilege that, you know, my kids don't have everything in the world that they probably want, but I'm, they're much more privileged and they have the things they need. And I just want them to be okay with the little things in life as opposed to the show show or like the big things that they're expected to have or whatever. So I just, um, just want them to be happy. <laughs> that's it. From a cultural retention standpoint, so your parents taught you Hindi before they taught you English. Mm -hmm. It's obviously very important to them. I think there is inevitably some level of dilution across generations, but how important is it for you that Zubin and Chetan retain the same amount of culture that you did? I think the more important thing for me is the language than anything else. So I do try to do like the religious holidays and this and that. But I think more than anything, I want the language to be retained because I think that's a connection to everything else. And then if it is of interest to them to be practicing Hindus or to practice all the other religious holidays, that's great. But I think more than anything else, I want them to carry the language with them because it'll always bring them back to curiosity of like what else exists in this tradition of ours or this heritage of mine that my parents were connected to and my grandparents were connected to. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard because I speak more English than I do Hindi now. And so I'm trying as much as possible that my husband and I try to communicate in Hindi because if they see it and they and I normalize it for them, they'll also feel it's something that they want to keep learning. So we try as much as we can. 
Zubin just started pre-K at PS201, which is the same school that you once attended. Clearly, you have really deep ties to your community. Earlier this year, you ran for NYC City Council. What prompted you to run and what would it have meant to you to represent your district? So I ran for a lot of reasons, you know, one being that I was facing a lot of the same issues my mom was when she was raising us or, you know, when my parents were raising us, like community centers or like lack of like after school programs. The fact that like the school system is still pretty much the same. Diversity is still the same. Like, you know, the school is very diverse when it comes to the student body, but the teachers are still 90% white. And to me, like a lot of these little, little things started becoming issues that were concerning Having seen how the city and the government's response was last year to the pandemic was an even bigger one, which really like pushed me over the edge and was like, something's got to change. New York City was is going to be electing around 35 new city council members out of 51. That was what was, was alarming to me as well, because it's like, well, if we're going to be electing new members into the city council, which will manage the entire budget of the city, then what we need are leaders that are going to be looking at the future and understanding what New York needs, because these will be the people that will shape the next 10 years of New York. And so what pushed me to really just kind of go for it was that exact reason, which is like, what what's happening in New York? Our government's like lack of response to what was happening and even continued lack of response. Like we still don't have enough testing sites, vaccinations, or just accessibility to services and, and the needs of people. And I think that that was just the driving factor Everything else was just, you know, my company was taking a bit of a hit. I still was able to continue doing the food insecurity work. And I was like, well, if you're in a position of power, then you can do that and amplify that work even more. So why not take this chance now? And unfortunately, it was supposed to be a June election, but our city council member decided to resign. So it became an even bigger challenge, but I was really proud of everything I accomplished. Out of eight candidates, I was the fourth. What I thought I would have six months to do, I only had six weeks to do. And, you know, with someone who had zero name recognition and didn't have coalitions built out for them from the community, I, I, you know, was able to really do a lot in that short amount of time and push myself forward. And I'll run again. I will make sure that I continue to do the work in the community because, you know, you don't have to be an elected official to give back or to do things for your community. You just have more resources, right? And that's the reason why you go for those seats. But Excited to see what New York is going to look like in the next 10 years and who will be representing us. One last question. This election that you ran in was a ranked choice voting system, which is hopefully the wave of the future. It's certainly a step in the right direction. How did it change your campaign? It's supposed to force more collaboration between candidates. Did you see any of that? It was the first ever in New York. So interestingly enough, in this particular race, ranked choice voting We didn't see a lot of collaboration. If anything, we saw the opposite. I mean, I had a candidate that was literally trying to kick me off the ballot and challenge my petitions, signatures for petitioning. And the reason I think that that was the case was because it was such a short period of time. Like, I didn't even get a chance to get to know the candidates. I didn't get a chance to talk to them because all I could focus on was my campaign, like our campaign. I could only focus on just talking to voters and making sure they knew me and getting out there and getting my name out there. And so I wish that I had more time to collaborate and do more initiatives with other candidates. And I think that, again, had it been just a straight June race, we would have seen more of that. 
But that was the one thing that every, I think almost every campaign did do was we made sure we talked about the reason why ranked choice voting was important and how it was giving a chance to the unlikely candidate to have a chance to actually win in a seat. And so I think those were the things that were really important. I wish I had seen more of the collaboration. I wish I myself had the ability to do more of it. But, you know, it's a lesson learned. And I'm, you know, now figuring out ways to do that in the future and, and to figure out ways to really build coalitions. But it's a start. So we'll see how how June will look and if all these other campaigns are going to try to do the same. Deepthi, where can people find you online and follow what you're up to? I am at Deepthi NYC on Twitter, Instagram. Send me a DM if you ever want to talk or collaborate, and I'd be happy to chat with you. But just my first name, D-E-E-P-T-I-N-Y-C on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.